0: I'm not <laughs> <laughs>
1: I apologize for the extremely late start for tonight's program. I promise I have a really good reason in that I had a flood in my apartment this afternoon and the guy who was supposed to come take a look at the carpets and make sure nothing was going to mold was rather late getting here and I had errands that absolutely, absolutely had to be done. So yeah, I've had a great day. I think we can cut the music but uh yeah so we will be doing our usual program uh only we're just gonna be doing seven to nine eastern tonight well seven to nine central it's gonna be <laughs> eight to ten eastern time zones uh, but as always thank you all for tuning in I truly enjoy doing this program and um, I'm already looking for ahead I'm already looking to uh, what are we gonna run after the Magnus archives is over did I just bury the lead and say I intend to continue this program past season one Uh, yes I I, at this point I do in fact uh, intend so to do um, unless you know people stop listening uh, that might uh, change things a bit, um, but yeah, uh, I intend to continue this program uh, roughly the same format. We might make a few adjustments as we go along, um, and we probably will not be um, following the season format. This will probably just become considered a weekly show. That that is currently the plan. I plan to wait until Halloween night to announce that, but uh, hey, why not? Anyway, um, so again, we're going to be doing roughly the same same show, same format, uh, just a little later. Um, and so we had a D, we had a D and D session, uh, uh, this Sunday, albeit slightly abbreviated, uh, because I had work and the usual supervisor who works Sundays wasn't, uh, is out on leave. Um, so yeah, I uh, I volunteered to work this Sunday on condition that I get Monday and uh, Wednesday off. And uh, they seemed okay with it. I got what I wanted, so. Uh, but anyway, uh, they they made their final preparations and then they left uh, for the Sharfell Mountains. Um, they had a near miss with a Gorgon, which in Dungeons and Dragons is a giant bull covered in metallic plates that uh, breathes a gas that can turn you into stone fun 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 and thankfully they managed to avoid that creature um because they had crazy high stealth rolls i mean i expected it from the ranger welk but um so they didn't have to encounter and and just to put in perspective again this the gorgon is basically a giant um bull-like creature that is covered in, in like metallic plates and has petrifying breath uh, it is a challenge rating five monster although I use the tool that lets me kind of boost it so I boosted it up to a seven um, because they're currently level six and, and I want to keep it fun I don't want it to get boring for my players. So, I boosted it to to challenge rating 7, um, and thankfully they missed, They, they, they missed out on that one, um, but they continued climbing in the mountains, and then they encountered a pair of basilisks, and these have a petrifying look, a stare to them, and, uh, apparently we had a couple near misses, but they went out, thankfully, um... And we had to end the session there because, like I said, we were doing uh, an abbreviated ab- abbreviated session, so um, there you have it. A uh, short update, but the, you know, they only had one, you know, the, the fight took up a, a great... Um, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna dive right into our stories like a pool without water starting with um, starting with our our headliner which is uh, a story by Robert e Howard now I'm sure uh, not everyone knows but um uh, he is basically the author resp- most well known for Conan the barbarian He was a prolific, uh, contributor to, um, Weird Tales and similar magazines, um, and he was someone, uh, Lovecraft had something in the way of a a relationship with, um, but he, one of his, his great contributions is he helped advance what is called the sword and sorcery, uh, genre of, um, short fantasy fiction. Um, so there you have it. Um, he kind of had a short and sad life. Um, he, he passed away, um, at the age of 30. Uh, no, 31, my mistake. Um, and he took his own life because, um, he found out his mother, um, had gone into a coma and was not expected, um... To to regain consciousness, um. So, yeah, short, sad life. Again, similar, similar to Lovecraft in many respects. Um, but, um, and of course, people have have questioned whether or not uh, he had mental health issues. Um. Uh, but he also had some physical issues as well um including a heart defect. Anyway, so we're going to get to our headline story in the village of Philafair as soon as I open up um my audio cart because I forgot to do that before I resume the program. But uh yeah, we'll get to that and then Uh, We've got a second story. First time we've done this, but this this story is only, I believe, about 12 minutes long. So we have a second story uh, related related to wolves. Uh, The She-Wolf by Saki. Um, Not very familiar with this author. This will be the first time I've heard of it. I would just look for werewolf fiction. Werewolf short stories. So... Okay, why why is my my thing not loading? So we are going to um we're going to get to it. and uh yeah so we got in the village of Philafair, followed by the she wolf and then uh i'll talk about our old time radio episode uh enjoy our great story and uh i'll see you on the flip side
2: August 1925 This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Read by Dale Grothman In the Forest of Fair by Robert E Howard The sun had set the great shadows came striding over the forest In the weird twilight of a late summer day, I saw the path ahead glide on among the mighty trees and disappear, and I shuddered and glanced fearfully over my shoulder. Miles behind lay the nearest village, miles ahead the next. I looked to left and right as I strode on, and anon I looked behind me. And anon I stopped short, grasping my rapier, as a breaking twig betokened the going of some small beast. Or was it a beast? But the path led on, and I followed, because, forsooth, I had naught else to do. As I went, I bethought myself. My own thoughts will rout me if I am not aware. What is there in this forest? except perhaps the creatures that roam it, deer and the like. Tush! the foolish legends of those villagers! And so I went, and the twilight faded into dusk. Stars began to blink, and the leaves of the trees murmured in the faint breeze. And then I stopped short, my sword leaping to my hand, for just ahead, around a curve in the path, someone was singing the words i could not distinguish but the accent was strange almost barbaric i stepped behind a great tree and the cold sweat beaded my forehead then the singer came in sight a tall thin man vague in the twilight i shrugged my shoulders a man i did not fear I sprang out my point raised stand he showed no surprise I prithee handle thy blade with care friend he said somewhat ashamed I lowered my sword I am new to this forest I quoth apologetically I hear talk of bandits I crave pardon where lies the road to Villa fair bleu, you've missed it, he answered. You should have branched off to the right, some distance back. I'm going there myself. If you may abide my company, I will direct you. I hesitated. Yet, why should I hesitate? Why, certainly, my name is Monteur de Normandy, and I am Carlos de Loup. No, I started back. He looked at me in astonishment pardon i said the name is strange does not loop mean wolf my family were always great hunters he answered he did not offer his hand you will pardon my staring said i as we walked down the path but i can hardly see your face in the dusk i sensed that he was laughing though he made no sound it is little to look upon he answered I stepped closer then leapt away my hair bristling a mask i exclaimed why do you wear a mask monsieur it is a vow he explained in fleeing a pack of hounds i vowed that if i escaped i would wear a mask for a certain time hounds monsieur wolves he answered quickly i said wolves we walked in silence for a while and then my companion said I am surprised that you walk these woods at night few people come this way even in the day I am in haste to reach the border I answered a treaty has been signed with the English and the Duke of Burgundy should know of it the people at the village sought to dissuade me they spoke of a wolf that is purported to roam these woods HERE THE PATH BRANCHES TO VILLA FAIR, SAID HE, AND I SAW A NARROW, CROOKED PATH THAT I HAD NOT SEEN WHEN I PASSED IT BEFORE. IT LED IN AMONG THE DARKNESS OF THE TREES. I SHUDDERED. DO YOU WISH TO RETURN TO THE VILLAGE? NO, I EXCLAIMED. NO, NO, LEAD ON. SO NARROW WAS THE PATH THAT WE WALKED SINGLE FILE, HE LEADING i looked well at him he was taller much taller than i and thin wiry he was dressed in a costume that smacked of spain a long rapier swung at his hip he walked with long easy strides noiselessly then he began to talk of travel and adventure he spoke of many lands and seas he had seen and many strange things so we talked and went further and further into the forest i presumed that he was french yet he had a very strange accent that was neither french nor spanish nor english nor like any language i had ever heard some words he slurred strangely and some he could not pronounce at all this path is not often used is it i asked not by many he answered and laughed silently I shuddered it was very dark and the leaves whispered together among the branches a fiend haunts this forest I said so the peasants say he answered but I have roamed it off and never have seen his face then he began to speak of strange creatures of darkness and the moon rose and shadows glittered among the trees he looked up at the moon haste he said we must reach our destination before the moon reaches her zenith we hurried along the trail they say I said that a werewolf haunts these woodlands it might be said he and we argued much upon the subject the old women say said he that if a werewolf is slain while a wolf then he is slain but if he is slain as a man then his half-soul will haunt his slayer for ever. But haste thee, the moon nears her zenith. We came into a small, moonlit glade, and the stranger stopped. Let us pause a while, said he. Nay, let us be gone, I urged. I will not this place. He laughed without sound. Why, said he, this is a fair glade. As good as a banquet-hall it is, and many times I have feasted here. Ha, ha, ha! Look ye, I will show you a dance. And he began bounding here and there, Anon flinging back his head and laughing silently. Thought I, the man is mad. As he danced his weird dance I looked about me. The trail went not on but stopped in the glade come said i we must on do you not smell the rank hairy smell that hovers about the glade wolves den here perhaps they are about us and are gliding upon us even now he dropped upon all fours bounded higher than my head and came toward me with a strange slinking motion that dance is called the dance of the wolf he said and my hair bristled keep off i stepped back and with a screech that set the echo shuddering he leapt for me and though the sword hung at his belt he did not draw it my rapier was half out when he grasped my arm and flung me headlong i dragged him with me and we struck the ground together wrenching a hand free i jerked off the mask a shriek of horror broke from my lips. Beast eyes glittered beneath that mask. White fangs flashed in the moonlight. The face was that of a wolf. In an instant, those fangs were at my throat. Taloned hands tore the sword from my grasp. I beat at that horrible face with my clenched fists, but his jaws were fastened on my shoulder. His talons tore at my throat. Then I was on my back. The world was fading. Blindly I struck out, my hand dropped, then closed automatically around the hilt of my dagger, which I had been unable to get at. I drew and stabbed. A terrible half-bestial bellowing screech. Then I reeled to my feet, free. At my feet lay the werewolf. I stooped, raised the dagger, then paused, looking up. The moon hovered close to her zenith. If I slew the thing as a man, its frightful spirit would haunt me forever. I sat down, waiting. The thing watched me with flaming wolf eyes. The long, wiry limbs seemed to shrink, to crook. Hair seemed to grow upon them. Fearing madness, I snatched up the thing's own sword and hacked it to pieces then I flung the sword away and fled the end of in the forest of villafaire by robert howard
3: this librivox recording is in the public domain the she wolf by saki Leonard Bilseter was one of those people who have failed to find this world attractive or interesting, and who have sought compensation in an unseen world of their own experience or imagination or invention. Children do that sort of thing successfully, but children are content to convince themselves and do not vulgarize their beliefs by trying to convince other people. Leonard Bilseter's beliefs were for the few—that is to say, anyone who would listen to him. His dabblings in the unseen might not have carried him beyond the customary platitudes of the drawing-room visionary, if accident had not reinforced his stock in trade of mystical lore. In company with a friend, who was interested in a Ural mining concern, he had made a trip across Eastern Europe at a moment when the great Russian railway strike was developing from a threat to a reality its outbreak caught him on the return journey somewhere on the further side of perm and it was while waiting for a couple of days at a wayside station in a state of suspended locomotion that he made the acquaintance of a dealer in harness and metalware who profitably whiled away the tedium of the long halt by initiating his english travelling companion in a fragmentary system of folk-lore that he had picked up from Transbaikal traders and natives leonard returned to his home circle garrulous about his russian strike experiences but oppressively reticent about certain dark mysteries which he alluded to under the resounding title of siberian magic the reticence wore off in a week or two under the influence of an entire lack of general curiosity and leonard began to make more detailed allusions to the enormous powers which this new esoteric force to use his own description of it conferred on the initiated few who knew how to wield it his aunt cecilia hoops who loved sensation perhaps rather better than she loved the truth gave him as clamorous an advertisement as any one could wish for by retailing an account of how he had turned a vegetable marrow into a wood pigeon before her very eyes as a manifestation of the possession of supernatural powers the story was discounted in some quarters by the respect accorded to mrs hoop's powers of imagination however divided opinion might be on the question of leonard's status as a wonder-worker or a charlatan he certainly arrived at mary hampton's house-party with a reputation for pre-eminence in one or other of these professions and he was not disposed to shun such publicity as might fall to his share esoteric forces and unusual powers figured largely in whatever conversation he or his aunt had a share in and his own performances past and potential were the subject of mysterious hints and dark avowals i wish you would turn me into a wolf mr Bilsiter said his hostess at luncheon the day after his arrival my dear mary said colonel hampton i never knew you had a craving in that direction "'Oh, a she-wolf, of course,' continued Mrs. Hampton. "'It would be too confusing to change one's sex "'as well as one's species at a moment's notice.' "'I don't think one should jest on these subjects,' said Leonard. "'I'm not jesting. I'm quite serious, I assure you. "'Only don't do it to-day. "'We have only eight available bridge players, "'and it would break up one of our tables. "'Tomorrow we shall be a larger party. "'Tomorrow night, after dinner.' In our present imperfect understanding of these hidden forces, I think one should approach them with humbleness rather than mockery, observed Leonard, with such severity that the subject was forthwith dropped. Clovis Sangrail had sat unusually silent during the discussion on the possibilities of Siberian magic after lunch he side-tracked lord pabham into the comparative seclusion of the billiard-room and delivered himself of a searching question have you such a thing as a she-wolf in your collection of wild animals a she-wolf of moderately good temper lord pabham considered oh, there is louisa he said a rather fine specimen of the timber wolf I got her two years ago in exchange for some arctic foxes. Most of my animals get to be fairly tame before they've been with me very long. I think I can say Louisa has an angelic temper, as she wolves go. Why do you ask?" "'I was wondering whether you would lend her to me for to-morrow night,' said Clovis, with the careless solicitude of one who borrows a collar-stud or a tennis-racket. Uh, "'To-morrow night?' yes wolves are nocturnal animals so the late hours won't hurt her said clovis with the air of one who has taken everything into consideration one of your men could bring her over from pabham park after dusk and with a little help he ought to be able to smuggle her into the conservatory at the same moment that mary hampton makes an unobtrusive exit lord pabham stared at clovis for a moment in pardonable bewilderment then his face broke into a wrinkled network of laughter oh that's your game is it you are going to do a little siberian magic on your own account and is mrs hampton willing to be a fellow conspirator mary pledged to see me through with it if you will guarantee louisa's temper i'll answer for louisa said lord pabham. By the following day the house-party had swollen to larger proportions, and Bilsiter's instinct for self-advertisement expanded duly under the stimulant of an increased audience. At dinner that evening he held forth at length on the subject of unseen forces and untested powers, and his flow of impressive eloquence continued unabated while coffee was being served in the drawing-room, preparatory to a general migration to the card-room. His aunt ensured a respectful hearing for his utterances, but her sensation-loving soul hankered after something more dramatic than mere vocal demonstration. "'Won't you do something to convince them of your powers, Leonard?' she pleaded. "'Change something into another shape. He can, you know, if he only chooses to,' she informed the company." "'Oh, do!' said Mavis Pellington, earnestly, and her request was echoed by nearly every one present. Even those who were not open to conviction were perfectly willing to be entertained by an exhibition of amateur conjuring. Leonard felt that something tangible was expected of him. "'Has uh, any one present,' he asked, "'got a threepenny bit or some small object of no particular value?' "'You're surely not going to make coins disappear, or something primitive of that sort,' said Clovis contemptuously. "'I think it very unkind of you not to carry out my suggestion of turning me into a wolf,' said Mary Hampton, as she crossed over to the conservatory to give her macaws their usual tribute from the dessert dishes. "'I have already warned you of the danger of treating these powers in a mocking spirit,' said Leonard solemnly i don't believe you can do it laughed mary provocatively from the conservatory i dare you to do it if you can i defy you to turn me into a wolf as she said this she was lost to view behind a clump of azaleas mrs hampton began leonard with increased solemnity but he got no further a breath of chill air seemed to rush across the room and at the same time the macaws broke forth into ear-splitting screams what on earth is the matter with those confounded birds mary exclaimed colonel hampton at the same moment an even more piercing scream from mavis pellington stampeded the entire company from their seats In various attitudes of helpless horror or instinctive defense, they confronted the evil-looking grey beast that was peering at them from amid a setting of fern and azalea. Mrs. Hoops was the first to recover from the general chaos of fright and bewilderment. "'Leonard!' she screamed shrilly to her nephew. "'Turn it back into Mrs. Hampton at once! It may fly at us at any moment. Turn it back!' i i don't know how to,' faltered Leonard, who looked more scared and horrified than anyone. "'What?' shouted Colonel Hampton. "'You've taken the abominable liberty of turning my wife into a wolf, and now you stand there calmly and say you can't turn her back again?' To do strict justice to Leonard, calmness was not a distinguishing feature of his attitude at the moment. "'I assure you I didn't turn Mrs. Hampton into a wolf. Nothing was farther from my intentions,' he protested. "'Then where is she, and how came that animal into the conservatory?' demanded the colonel. "'Of course we must accept your assurances that you didn't turn Mrs. Hampton into a wolf,' said Clovis politely, "'but you will agree that appearances are against you.' are we to have all these recriminations with that beast standing there ready to tear us to pieces wailed mavis indignantly lord pabham you know a good deal about wild beasts suggested colonel hampton the wild beasts that i have been accustomed to said lord Pabham, have come with proper credentials from well-known dealers or have been bred in my own menagerie i have never before been confronted with an animal that walks unconcernedly out of an azalea bush leaving a charming and popular hostess unaccounted for As far as one can judge from outward characteristics, he continued, it has the appearance of a well-grown female of the North American timber-wolf, a variety of the common species Canis lupus. "'Oh, never mind its Latin name,' screamed Mavis, as the beast came a step or two further into the room. "'Can't you entice it away with food, and shut it up where it can't do any harm?' "'If it is really Mrs. Hampton, who has just had a very good dinner, I don't suppose food will appeal to it very strongly,' said Clovis. "'Leonard,' beseeched Mrs. Hoops tearfully, "'even if this is none of your doing, can't you use your great powers to turn this dreadful beast into something harmless, before it bites us all—a rabbit or something?' "'I don't suppose Colonel Hampton would care to have his wife turned into a succession of fancy animals as though we were playing a round game with her,' interposed Clovis. "'I absolutely forbid it,' thundered the Colonel. "'Most wolves that I've had anything to do with have been inordinately fond of sugar,' said Lord Pabham. "'If you like, I'll try the effect on this one.' He took a piece of sugar from the saucer of his coffee-cup, and flung it to the expectant Louisa, who snapped it in mid-air. There was a sigh of relief from the company. A wolf that ate sugar when it might at the least have been employed in tearing macaws to pieces had already shed some of its terrors. The sigh deepened to a gasp of thanksgiving when Lord Pabham decoyed the animal out of the room by a pretended largess of further sugar. There was an instant rush to the vacated conservatory. There was no trace of Mrs. Hampton except the plate containing the macaw's supper. The door is locked on the inside, exclaimed Clovis, who had deftly turned the key as he affected to test it. Everyone turned towards Bilsiter. If you haven't turned my wife into a wolf, said Colonel Hampton, will you kindly explain where she has disappeared to, since she obviously could not have gone through a locked door? I will not press you for an explanation of how a North American timber-wolf suddenly appeared in the conservatory, but I think I have some right to inquire what has become of Mrs. Hampton." Bilseter's reiterated disclaimer was met with a general murmur of impatient disbelief. "'I refuse to stay another hour under this roof,' declared Mavis Bellington. "'If our hostess has really vanished out of human form,' said Mrs. Hoops, "'none of the ladies of the party can very well remain. I absolutely decline to be chaperoned by a wolf.' "'It's a she-wolf,' said Clovis, soothingly the correct etiquette to be observed under the unusual circumstances received no further elucidation the sudden entry of mary hampton deprived the discussion of its immediate interest some one has mesmerized me she exclaimed crossly i found myself in the game larder of all places being fed with sugar by lord Pabham. i hate being mesmerized and the doctor has forbidden me to touch sugar the situation was explained to her as far as it permitted of anything that could be called explanation. Then you really did turn me into a wolf, Mr. Bilsiter she exclaimed excitedly, but Leonard had burned the boat in which he might now have embarked on a sea of glory. He could only shake his head feebly it was i who took that liberty said clovis you see i happen to have lived for a couple of years in northeastern russia and i have more than a tourist's acquaintance with the magic craft of that region one does not care to speak about these strange powers but once in a way when one hears a lot of nonsense being talked about them one is tempted to show what siberian magic can accomplish in the hands of some one who really understands it i yielded to that temptation may i have some brandy the effort has left me rather faint if leonard Bilsiter could at that moment have transformed clovis into a cockroach and then have stepped on him he would gladly have performed both operations END OF SECTION 6 END OF FIVE PIECES BY VARIOUS
0: Truth
4: is stranger than fiction,
0: and this is the proof. This is Ripley's.
4: Believe it or not, the tombstone of Margaret Johnston and her six children in Trenet, Scotland, was erected over an empty grave. The family vanished in the 17th century without a trace. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the man who paid for his own assassination. When a man lends another man money, he certainly does not intend that it should be used to pay for his own assassination. But such was the case with William the Silent, father of Dutch independence, who advanced 12 crowns to a man by the name of Balthazar Gerard. Gerard had requested an audience with William, and the money was given to him to pay for his transportation. But the money was used by Gerard to buy a gun with which he shot William dead. Believe it or not.
0: (laughs)
1: And we are back after those two stories in the Forest of Villafair by Robert E. Howard and the She-Wolf by Saki. Again, not super familiar with Saki as a writer. I've seen... it's a pen name. Uh, I've seen the name, uh, bandied about in short horror and fantasy fiction, but I haven't really done a deep dive. Some Anyway... We're going to get to our episode... Okay, we can, we can kill the music. Kill the music! We're going to get ready to um, start our episode of the Magnus Archives tonight. Episode 7, The Piper. Um, again, I, ho- I hope you guys are enjoying the Magnus Archives um, it's a show I know I can play on this program because it is distributed under a Creative Commons, four point, uh, Creative Commons uh, 4.0 license, which basically means as long as I give um, credit and, of course, mention the license, um, it's fair game. I, in fact, I confirmed that um, a while ago. With them, so yeah, Um, and that's one of the things why uh, you know it's gonna it's gonna be hard to find a replacement for Magnus Archives. Of course, we still got about uh uh, about ninety three episodes to go, or one hundred ninety three. So it's gonna be a while before we have to find one. But again, uh, it would have to be either something we can get. Uh, podcast creator approval run or something that is li- uh, distributed under a Creative Commons license anything distributed under a Creative Commons license um, is, is fair game as far as I know is tentatively fair game anyway, episode 7 of the Magnus Archives the Piper Coming right up next.
5: Dusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 7 The Piper Staff Sergeant Clarence Berry, regarding his time serving with Wilfred Owen in the Great War. Original statement given November 6th, 1922. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. A lot of people call me lucky, you know. Not many came through the entirety of the war in one piece, and if you discount the burns, then I did indeed do just that. Even fewer spent all four years at the front, like I did. I was never sent for treatment for shell-shock or injury, and even my encounter with a German flamethrower only ended up with me in a front-line hospital at Wipers. I was still in that field hospital when the fighting started at the Somme, so I suppose that was lucky too. Four years, I... Sometimes feel like I'm the only one who saw the whole damn show from start to finish, as though I alone know the Great War in all its awful glory. But deep down I know that honour, such as it is, has to go to Wilfred. You wouldn't have thought it from his poems, but all told, his time at the front totalled not much over a year. Yet he got to know the war in a way I never did. He's certainly the only person I know that ever saw the Piper." "'I grew up poor, on the streets of Salford, so I joined the army as soon as I was old enough. "'I know you've heard the stories of brave lads signing up at fourteen, "'but this was before the war started, so there wasn't such a demand for manpower, "'and the recruiters were much more scrupulous about making sure those enlisting were of age. "'Even so, I was almost too skinny for them to take me, and barely made the required weight.' but in the end I made it through and, after my training, was assigned to the Manchester Regiment, 2nd Battalion, and it wasn't long before we were shipped off to France with the British Expeditionary Force. You seem like educated sorts, so I'm sure you read in the papers how that went. Soon enough, though, the trenches were dug and the boredom started to set in. Now, boredom is fine, understand, when the alternative are bombs, snipers and gas attacks, but... "'Months at a time, sitting in a waterlogged hole in the ground, "'hoping your foot doesn't start swelling well. "'It has a quiet terror all its own. "'Wilford came to us in July of 1916. "'I'm not intimately familiar with his history, "'but he clearly came from stock good enough to be assigned "'as a probationary second lieutenant. "'I was a sergeant at the time, "'so had the job of giving him the sort of advice and support "'that a new officer needs from an NCO "'with two years of mud under his nails.' That notwithstanding, I will admit to taking a dislike to the man when I first met him. He outranked me, and most of the others in the trench, in both military and social terms, and he seemed to treat the whole affair with an airy contempt. There's a sort of numbness that you adopt after months or years of bombing, a deliberate blankness which I think offended him. He was unfailingly polite, far more so than I was accustomed to in the Flanders mud, where the conversations, such as they were, were coarse and bleak. Yet under this politeness I could feel him dismiss out of hand any suggestion that I gave him or report that I made. It came as no surprise to me when he mentioned he wrote poetry. To be perfectly honest, I expected him to be dead within a week. To Wilfred's credit, he made it almost a year before anything horrendous happened to him. By the following spring, I'd venture to say that we might almost have been able to call each other friends. He'd been composing poetry during this time, of course, and occasionally would read it out to some of the men. They generally enjoyed it, but personally I thought it was dreadful. There was an emptiness to it, and every time he tried to put the war into words, it just sounded trite, like there was no soul to what he had to say. He would often talk about his literary aspirations and how he longed to be remembered, to take what this war truly was and immortalise it. Were I prone to flights of fancy, I dare say I would call his words portentous. When he talked like that, he had an odd habit of trailing off in the middle of the conversation with the tilt of his head, as though his attention had been taken by a far-off sound. The spring thaw had just recently passed when it happened, and we were on the offensive. Our battalion was near Savvy Wood when the orders came down. We were to attack the Hindenburg Line. Our target was a trench on the west side of St Quentin. It was a quiet march. Even at this stage there was often still some excitement when the orders came down for action, even if it was usually stifled by that choking fear that you got when waiting for the whistle. Yet that morning there was something different in the air, an oppressive dread. We'd made this attack before, and knew that the change from the valley exposed us to artillery fire. And artillery was always the scariest part of it for me. Bayonets you could dodge, bullets you could duck, even gas you could block out if you were lucky, but... Artillery? All you could do against artillery was pray. Even Wilfred felt it, I could tell. He was usually quite talkative before combat. Morbid, but always talkative. That morning he didn't say a word. I tried to talk with him, raise his spirits, as is a sergeant's duty, but he just held up his hand to quiet me and turned his head to listen. At the time I didn't know what it was he was hearing, but it kept him silent. Even when we crested the ridge and the rest of us tried to drown out the deafening thrum of artillery with our own charging cry, even then he made no sound. The ground shook with the impact of the mortar shells and i ran from foxhole to crater to foxhole keeping my head low to avoid the bullets as i ran i felt a shooting pain in my ankle and pitched forward into the mud looking down i saw i'd been caught by a length of barbed wire half hidden by the damp upturned soil i felt a surge of panic begin to overtake me and frantically tried to remove the wire from my leg but only succeeded in getting my hand scratched up quite badly I looked around desperately to see if there was anyone else nearby who could help, and there, not twenty yards in front of me, I saw Wilfred standing, his face blank, and his head swaying to some unheard rhythm. And then I did hear it, gently riding over the pulse of mortars and the rattle of guns and the moans of dying men, a faint piping melody. I could not have told you whether it was bagpipes or panpipes or some instrument I had never heard before, but its whistling tune was unmistakable. It struck me with the deepest sadness and a gentle creeping fear. And in that moment I knew what was about to happen. I looked at Wilfred, and as our eyes met, I saw that he knew as well. I heard a single gunshot, much louder than any of the others somehow. And I saw him go stiff, his eyes wide. And then the mortar blast hit him. He was lost in an eruption of mud and earth. I had plenty of time to mourn him, lying in that dreadful hole until nightfall, when I could free my leg as quietly and gently as possible before crawling back to our trench. He was slow going. Every time a flare went up, I could only lay motionless and pray. "'but the good Lord saw fit to let me reach our line relatively unscathed. "'I was quickly bundled off to the field hospital, "'which was overburdened as always. "'They didn't have much in the way of medicine or staff to spare, "'and certainly no beds free, "'so they washed my wounds with iodine, bandaged them, "'and sent me on my way, told me to come back if I got gangrene. "'I did have a look around the place to see if I could find Wilfred, "'but there was no sign of him to be found anywhere. "'Asking around the trench,' No one had seen him return among the wounded, so I began to reconcile myself to the fact that he was dead. He wasn't the first friend I'd lost to the Germans, nor even the first I'd seen die in front of me, but something about that strange music that I heard in the moments before that explosion lingered in my mind and left me dwelling on Wilfred in many a quiet moment. It was probably about a week and a half later I heard shouting from the end of the trench, It was a scouting party who had been reconnoitering the river that flowed near Savvy Wood. Apparently they had found a wounded officer lying in a shell hole there and brought him back. I made my way over and was astounded to see that it was Wilfred. His uniform was torn and burned. He was covered with blood and his eyes had a distant, far-off expression to them. But he was most definitely alive. I rode with him back up to the field hospital along with the corporal of the squad who had found him. Apparently he had been lying in that hole for days, ever since the battle. They'd found him there, half dead from dehydration and fatigue, covered in the gore of another soldier. Whatever shell had created the hole he'd ended up in had clearly annihilated some other poor soul, and it was in his gory remnants that Wilfred had lain for almost two weeks. I waited outside the hospital tent while he was being treated. The doctor came out shortly, a grave look on his face. He told me the lieutenant was physically unharmed, something I considered at the time nothing short of a miracle, but that he had one of the worst cases of shell-shock the doctor had ever encountered, and would have to be shipped back to England for recuperation. I asked him if I could see him, and the doctor consented, though he warned me that Wilfred hadn't said a word since he'd been brought in. As soon as I stepped inside the medical tent, I was overwhelmed by the sweet scent of decaying flesh and the moans of pain and despair. The sharp smell of the disinfectant brought back unpleasant memories of chlorine gas attacks. Still, I eventually found my way over to Wilfred's bed and, sure enough, there he was, staring silently out at the world, though with an intensity that alarmed me. I followed his gaze to a bed nearby and there I saw a private I didn't recognize. His forehead was slick with sweat, and his chest rose and fell quickly, then abruptly stopped. I realized with a start that a man had just died, and nobody had noticed except Wilfred. I tried to engage him in conversation, rattled off a few meaningless pleasantries. How are you doing, old man? Heard you had a bit of a close call, glad you found yourself a crump hole, all that sort of nonsense. None of it seemed to produce any reaction in him. And instead he turned to me, and after a long while he simply said, I met the war. I told him that he certainly had. Not many walk away from something like that, and lying in that hole so long, surrounded by all that death, well, he had definitely met the war, and it was a rotten bloody business. But Wilfred just shook his head like I didn't understand. And to be honest, I was starting to feel like I didn't. He told me again that he met the war he said it was no taller than i was it struck me that perhaps he was describing some dreadful mirage that had come upon him as he lay in that wretched place and i asked him to tell me what the war looked like i remember exactly what he said he told me it had three faces one to play its pipes of scrimshawed bone one to scream its dying battle cry and one but would not open its mouth. For when it did, blood and sodden soil flowed out like a waterfall. Those arms that did not play the pipes were gripping blades and guns and spears, while others raised their hands in futile supplication of mercy, and one in a crisp salute. It wore a tattered coat of wool, olive green where it was not stained black, and beneath nothing could be seen but a body beaten, slashed, and shot, until nothing remained but the wounds themselves. I had heard quite enough by this point, and said so to Wilfred, but if he heard me, he gave no indication of it. He told me that the war, the piper, had come to claim him, and he had begged to remain. The thing had paused its tune for but a moment. With one of its arms, it reached out and handed him a pen. He said he knew it would return for him someday, but now he too would live to play its tune. The way he looked at me at that moment was the same way he'd looked at me before the shell hit. For a moment, I could have sworn I once again heard that music on the breeze. I left almost immediately after that, and was later told that he'd been shipped back to Britain to recuperate at Craig Lockhart. The other men grumbled about officers' perks and a nice holiday for the lieutenant, But they didn't know what he'd been through, and I found it very hard to envy him myself. At one point I asked some of the squad who brought him back whether he'd been holding a pen when they found him. But they told me he hadn't. The only thing they'd found nearby were the tags of the dead man among his remains. A man named Joseph Rayner. And for a long while that was that. Wilfred was back at home recovering and taking on lighter duties while I slogged on through the mud of Flanders. I had a few close calls myself, including the flamethrower that marked me so distinctively. could have been worse, of course, if the rain hadn't almost liquefied the mud of no-man's land, I'd have gone up like a lucifer. I did start to notice something among the troops, though. Every time we lined up to go over the top, I would watch them, look into their faces. Most of them showed naught but the starkest fear, of course, but a few of them seemed distant. The whistle would startle them back to themselves, and with wide eyes they would surge forward. I had seen this before all that business with Wilfred, but had always assumed it was simply the mind trying to choke down the likelihood of its own death. Now when I watched, I found I could not help but notice the slight tilt of the head, as though gently straining their ears to hear a far-off tune. Those men never made it back to the trenches. You know the phrase, to pay the piper? I thought on it a lot those many months. The debt of Hamelin, who for their greed had their children taken from them, never to be returned. Did you know Hamelin is a real place in Germany? Yes, not too far from Hanover, as I recall. We had a prisoner once from there. I wanted to ask him about the old fairy tale and what, if anything, he knew of the piper. The poor soul didn't speak a word of English, though, and died from an infected shrapnel wound a few days later. He spent his last minutes humming a familiar tune. That night, as we scrambled through mud and broken metal in another futile attack, I began to wonder, were we the children stolen from their parents by the piper's tune, or were we the rats that were led to the river and drowned because they ate too much of the wealthy's grain? Still, those amusings for poets, among whom I do not number. I did keep up with the Wilfred's work, though, and was startled to see how much it had changed since he left. Where once it could have been dismissed as frivolous, there was now a tragedy to it that flowed from the words. Even now I can't hear exposure without being back in that damned trench at wintertime and the public clearly felt similar, as one of the few newspapers we actually got through to the line had an extensive article praising his first collection. Despite all this, there was something about it that sat uneasily with me. Wilfred returned to the Second Manchesters in July of 1918. He was clearly much changed from his time away, and seemed to be in good enough spirits, though we talked little any more, and when he looked at me, I saw in his eyes a fear, that he was quick to hide the war was grinding towards a close at this point there was a fatigue that could be felt everywhere even the enemy machine guns felt slower and more begrudging in their fire but this charged our commanders to spur us on to more and more aggressive actions some desperate attempt to push germany into a surrender i suppose and our attacks grew to a crescendo on the first day of october we were ordered to storm the enemy position at Joncourt. I remember the weather that day was beautiful, a last day of sunshine before autumn pressed in. We charged with some success, as I believe the German artillery hadn't been lined up correctly, and for the first time since his return, I found myself fighting alongside Wilfred. I can say without a word of a lie that across all the war, I never saw a soldier fight with such ferocity as I saw in him that day. I hasten to add that that statement is not given in admiration. The savagery I saw in him as he tore into a man with his bayonet, I'd just as soon forget it. As he charged, he howled a terrible battle cry, and just for a moment, I could have sworn that I saw him cast a shadow that was not his own. I read in the paper he won the military cross for that attack. It was a month later that I woke up to find him sitting next to my bed. He stared at me, not unkindly, though there was something in his eye that put me ill at ease. Almost over now, Clarence, he said to me. I said, yes, it did seem to be all coming to an end. He smiled and shook his head. He sat there quietly for some time. At one point a flare burst in the sky outside, and enough of that stark red light came through the dugout's makeshift doorway for me to see that Wilfred was crying. I knew he was listening to the piper's tune. He asked me if I heard it, and I told him no, I didn't. And I wasn't sure I ever really had. He nodded, and said he didn't know which of us was the lucky one neither did I. Still don't, really. Wilfred Owen died crossing the canal at Sambrawas two days later. There wasn't meant to be much, if any, resistance, but some of the soldiers stationed there returned fire. I found myself crouching behind him as the captain, who had been shot in the hip, was pulled to safety. As we prepared to charge, Wilfred stopped all at once. And turned to me with a smile on his face. At that moment, I saw a trickle of blood start to flow from an opening hole in his forehead. I feel like I should make this clear. I have seen many people get shot. I know what it looks like, and how a bullet hole appears. But here the bullet hole simply opened, like an eye, and he fell to the ground, dead. It was told to me later that it was on that day the first overtures of peace were made between the nations. The armistice was signed almost exactly a week later. We were shipped home soon after. I believe it was not merely on that day, but at that very moment when Wilfred fell, that the peace was finally assured. No one can convince me otherwise. Did the piper spare him before? Did it simply use him later to cast him aside? I don't know, and I try not to think about it overmuch. I have a wife now and a child on the way, but I still get nightmares sometimes. The parade for Armistice Day passed by my house last year, and I had to shut my window tight when the military band marched past. It wasn't a tune I cared to hear. Statement ends. Well, if further evidence was needed of my predecessor's disorganisation, here we have it. A statement from 1922 filed among the mid-2000s. Obviously there's not much research or further investigation to be done into a case almost a hundred years old, especially when it involves so well-documented a figure as Wilfred Owen. Still, an interesting enough tale and I feel like I recognise the name Joseph Rayner from somewhere, though for the life of me I couldn't say where. I've had the case returned to its proper location in the archives. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening.
1: We are back. And that just kind of goes to show how deep the roots of the Magnus Archives uh, goes. I mean, they've got a story from World War I. Uh, So, um, yeah. And again, what we're seeing in the story is the lore being developed. We're kind of getting an understanding of just how long the Magnus Archives has been around for... Mm -hmm. Um, so there you go. The Magnus Institute. The Archives is a part of the Institute. Philly me. But, uh, so yeah, we're gonna get ready. You know what? I just realized we did not do one of our, um, Ripley's. So, we're gonna do that going into the break, and then we'll do another one coming out. Because, yeah. So, uh, anyway, so we're gonna get ready to do... Our episode of the Strange Doctor Weird. Now, it's come to my attention that apparently, when the uh, old-time radio researchers were were putting this together, apparently, they mixed up a couple of the episode titles. So, this one is uh, "Death in the Everglades" that we're going to go to. Excuse me. So. So we are going to um get ready to go to that again we're gonna need, we're we're just kind of winging it tonight unfortunately well I, I don't think it's unfortunate uh but yeah all right so we're gonna get ready for uh the strange doctor weird episode what is actually episode four death in the Everglades uh but right before that we're gonna do a Ripley short so. Enjoy...
4: Carson, the famous scout, was a boy of 17 in Franklin, Missouri. He ran away from the saddle maker to whom he was apprenticed, and the official reward for his recapture was one cent, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the reward given to a thrifty nephew. Thurston Manor and its vast estate in Scotland was to be willed by Mrs. Agnes Hunter, a widow, to one of her three nephews, who she invited to come visit her. The first nephew arrived riding in a coach. The second nephew came on horseback. But Robert Hunter, the third nephew, showed up on foot. His thrifty aunt was so impressed, she bequeathed to him all of her property. Believe it or not.
6: Adam Hatz presents... The Strange Dr. Weird.
7: Good evening. Come in, won't you? You seem a bit nervous. Perhaps the cemetery outside this house has upset you. There are things far worse than cemeteries. Such things as dark, forbidding swamps, stretching for hundreds of miles and inhabited by snakes and mosquitoes and alligators, as in the story I want to tell you tonight. A story I call Death in the Everglades. My story begins in the vast shadowy wastes of the Florida Everglades. A small dugout glides through the dark swamp water, pulled along by a weather-beaten guide. The guide's passengers, Gerald Drake and his wife Kitty, sit nervously in the center of the dugout, subdued by their strange and uncanny surroundings.
8: Gerald, how much further do we have to go? It's been two hours now since we left the mainland.
9: I'll see. Guide, how much further is it to my uncle's home?
10: It
8: ain't much further. Get this small piece. Gerald, are you sure your Uncle Jason has money?
9: Well, up until my mother died a year ago, Uncle Jason was sending her $500 a month. And he owns thousands of acres of valuable Florida property.
8: If he has money, why should he choose to live here all alone in these horrible swamps?
9: Because he's an eccentric.
8: Oh, Gerald, please, let's turn back. This horrible dark swamp with its alligators and snakes frightens me. I have a feeling that something dreadful will happen if we don't turn back.
9: Only a fool, Kitty. We can't turn back. We're broke, do you understand that? Uncle Jason is our last hope. We must go on.
10: Why have you come here, Gerald?
9: Well, after all, Uncle Jason, I am your only living relative, and... Well, I wanted to find out how you were getting along.
8: Gerald worries about your living here alone in
10: the swamp. I'll always live here in the swamp. Always. It's quiet and peaceful here. And I have my friends. Your your friends? Yes. Didn't you see them as you came here? Singing in the trees, swimming in the water. I know them all. They're my friends. They protect me from harm like true friends do. Yes, yes, of course, Uncle. I, just. I know why you come here. You want money. That's why you come here, isn't it?
9: Well, uh, yes. You, you see, Uncle Jason, we, we... Get out!
10: Get out, you hear? I won't give you a cent. Not a cent.
9: But, Uncle Jason, after all, you must remember that I'm your only... Leave my
10: house at once!
8: Get out! We can't. The guide won't be back until 4 o'clock this afternoon to take us to the mainland.
10: Eh. Yeah. hey, well, then. You must stay here until he comes. I'm going out now, and when I come back at sundown, I don't want to find either of you here.
8: doing? I'm trying,
9: trying to break the lock on this metal cash box. Cash box? Yes, my darling. A sure talk when Uncle Jason convinced me that he kept his money someplace in this house. It wasn't too difficult to find his cash oh, box. Oh, If my dear uncle won't part with his money willingly, he's going to have to part with it unwillingly. My, my
10: cash box. What are you doing with it? Uncle Jason.
9: You're, uh, you're home a bit early, aren't you, Uncle Jason?
10: You're trying to rob me. You're like all the others. Well, I won't let you rob me. Give me my box. Give me my- I don't box. like to do this, Uncle Jason, but I must have that money, understand? Come on now. you me kill me, but you'll never get away with my box. Give me that. My friend in the swamp. they oh, see you don't. You'll never leave this swamp. Never. You- Very well, Uncle. Oh, if you insist. Let go of him. Let go. Or you'll
9: kill him. That's exactly what I'm doing. You're the one who's never going to leave the swamps, Uncle. You're going to stay here with your friends forever while I go back to the mainland with your money. There!
8: Gerald. Gerald, you've killed him. You've killed him. They'll send us to prison for
9: this. Don't be a fool. Any once you come looking for Uncle Jason, they, they won't find a trace. of What do you mean? I'm going to get rid of dear Uncle Jason. <laughs> yes, give me a hand with his body, Kitty. We're taking Uncle Jason to his friend's.
8: Gerald, how much further do we have to carry him?
9: This is far I... enough, darling uh, Just uh, set him down here
8: Here, where the water's edge Yeah,
9: uh, it's a loop perfectly
8: let his legs here.
9: That's it There we are
8: Gerald, you aren't just going to leave him here, are you?
9: Why, of course, darling Uncle Jason's friends will look after him
8: His friends.
9: Oh, yes. We'll go over there. See him swimming this way?
8: Alligators. Monster alligators. They're coming up out of the water.
9: Yes, so they are.
8: Look. One of them is crawling up to Uncle Jason's body. He's going to...
9: Yes. Goodbye, Uncle Jason. (laughs)
6: Our mystery will be continued in a moment. But, Dr. Weird, if uh, if you'll come over here, I uh, have a mystery of my own. Mystery is my business, young man. All right, uh, here's the clue. The number five. Five dead men? Oh, no, I'm afraid you're wrong, Doctor. I'm talking about the famous Adam Five, the quality hat made of all fur felt. Available at the thousands of Adam Hat stores and authorized dealers all over the country for only five dollars. And it's far from dead. In fact, it's the liveliest number you've ever seen, mister. Why not step into an Adam hat shop and prove it to yourself? Try on your size in a famous Adam 5. Examine its snappy style, its lively color, the look of distinction. You don't have to be a master detective to see that in quality and style, an Adam is America's top hat. Now,
7: Dr. Weird. (laughs) now I'll finish my story, Death in the Everglades. An hour after Uncle Jason's death, Gerald and Kitty sat on Jason's dock, waiting for the guide to arrive. While they waited, Gerald tried to break open the metal cash box, but without success. Suddenly, they heard a shout.
10: Hello there! Sorry if I kept you folks waiting and get hop in the dugout. We're our away back to the mainland. It's getting dark in a few hours. You don't want to be caught in the... What are you staring at? That box you got there. That's the box your uncle keeps his money in. I've seen it when he's giving me money for provisions. What are you doing with it?
9: That's my business, and I don't have to explain it to you. You do if you want me to take you in my dugout to the mainland. Perhaps this will help you change your mind about that. A gun? Yeah. Now, if you value your life, you'll have us on the mainland within two hours. Two hours, you understand? In two hours, are almost up. Why haven't we reached the mainland? It's already dark.
10: It's just a small piece beyond this
8: island we're facing.
9: Hey yeah, Kitty. In a few minutes, we'll be on the mainland.
8: But, Gerald, the guide will go to the local sheriff and tell him everything.
9: Don't you worry about the guide. I'll take care of him. That fool! Why's he gone so close to the island? Have us a growl if he doesn't watch... Gerald!
8: Gerald, he's gone! He's not in the boat!
9: Gone! Hey. You're right. He must have swung on an overhead branch as we were passing the island.
8: Gerald, Gerald, there he is. Is he standing in that small clearing on the island? I'm own way to the mainland, you thieving murderer! I'll never take you there. Oh, Gerald, what will we do without him? Kitty, get
9: hold of yourself. We're going to reach the mainland safely. Oh, but
8: how can we find our way? The sun's setting. It is already dark here in the swamp. We may be miles from safety. But miles of these tiny winding streams... These horrible cypress trees growing together over our heads So we can't see where we're going Savage, it, Jenny.
9: Listen to me We're not in any danger, do you hear me? I admit that we can't get out of the swamp tonight All we have to do is stay right here in the dugout until morning When it's light again No, it...
8: no, we'll never find our way out Even the guides get lost in the Everglades sometimes and anyway Anyway, they won't let us go They'll stop us just like he said Who'll stop us? Uncle Jason's friends Listen to them all around us, waiting for us. Look, there in the water.
9: They're coming for us. The elegant. Kitty, you mustn't say that. We're going to make it, do you hear me? And we'll be rich. There's a fortune in this cash box. Okay, I'll open it, boy. Then you'll see how rich we are. Here. It's, it's a hard lock to break off. Maybe I can shoot it open. Ah, Kitty, the lock's broken. Kitty, look. Money. Money? Yeah.
8: It's 50, 100,
9: 150, 200.
8: 210. You mean there's only $210 in that
9: box? Yeah, but look, look, there's a paper in the box. He'll probably tell us where the rest of the money's hidden. Come on, let's, let's see. Ah, it's a real estate deed. 20,000 acres. Assessed value... Assessed value,
8: $1,000. No, it can't be. Oh, your uncle was a wealthy man. He had money and land. Yes, $210 and 20,000 acres of worthless swamp. What? Oh, there, there must be more
11: than this. There's got to be.
8: Stand up, Gerald. Look around you. 20,000 acres of worthless swamp. It's all yours, Gerald. And we committed murder to get it. Kitty, sit down. Sit down. Do you hear me? you will turn a dugout out over. are lost in your vast kingdom full of snakes and alligators. Why don't you ask one of your loyal subjects how to get to the mainland? Go ahead, Gerald. Kitty, back out. We'll turn it all over.
9: <laughs> Kitty, Kitty, are you all right?
0: Where are you? There
9: I am, hanging on the dugout. Swim over this way, Kitty. Kitty, listen, church bell. They're ringing in the village church in the mainland. We can't be more than a few hundred yards from the mainland.
8: Gerald, that means
9: we'll be able to reach the mainland. Yeah. All we have to do is right the dugout and Gerald! get
0: me, ah! Kitty!
9: Kitty, where are you?
0: What a... no!
7: No! Too bad about poor Gerald and Kitty, isn't it? Such a nice young couple. but so unlucky. How were they to know that Uncle Jason's cash box contained only a few hundred dollars and a deed to some worthless swamp land? And then to die in such a horrible way only a few hundred yards from safety in the jaws of Uncle Jason's friends, the alligators. You know, it occurs to me that perhaps Uncle Jason buried his fortune someplace in the swamps. Uh, perhaps you'd be interested in going with me to the Everglades to search for it. Oh, you have to go now. Too bad. But perhaps you'll drop in on me again soon. I'm always home. Just look for the house on the other side of the cemetery. The house of Dr. Weird.
0: Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the proof. This is Ripley's
4: Believe It or Not. Preston Hall in Scotland was built by Lord Adam Gordon, who spent every working hour of 31 years supervising its construction. On the day it was completed, he lost interest in the castle and sold it. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the world's tallest bouquets. Whenever people want to say something on a special occasion, many times they say it with flowers. And although flowers come in many colors, shapes, and sizes, the tallest bouquets in the world are found in Austria. The residents of the Lungau district carry them in a church parade each June 24th. And the bouquets which they carry comprise 25,000 flowers each. The bouquet stands 26 feet high, believe it or not. (laughs)
1: We are back, getting towards the tail end of our program tonight. That was the Strange Dr. Weird, originally broadcast on... December 5th, 1944. December 5th, my birthday! Didn't know I was that old, did you? Like I said, most people also don't know about my prestigious line of men's hats. Anyway... We're going to go into our old-time radio pick for tonight, and it's, uh, it's a doozy, and I think we can get rid of the music for now. Uh, it is the May 7th, 1944 broadcast of The Weird Circle, and the the drama is The Werewolf, an adaptation of a story whose name I forget because I've never read it. But, uh, yeah, it's a, most, most everything that was done on the weird, weird Circle was an adaptation of a short story. Um, in fact, I think they, they didn't do anything really original. Not, not that I'm knocking it for, I'm just saying um, they didn't do, like, original drama. Um, they just did adaptations. But, anyway, we're going to get to the werewolf, goddamn war-wolf. Uh, here on Dreadtime Stories, and don't forget, next week is the final episode of our first regular, the f- final regular episode of our first season. But, well, like I said, I've pretty much decided that we're going to um, um, just continue the show as a, a regular show. Um, but again, we'll have announcements about that. But we will be doing a Halloween night special. I'm working on trying to arrange for, uh, special guests to join me. But we're going to be doing a classic story, some good old time radio that I think my guests, the, the guests I plan on inviting anyway, will enjoy. And, uh, yeah. So again, but I do want to stress that this show will not have an episode of the Magnus Archives or the Strange Doctor Weird, our serials. Um, those are going to be, you know, even though it's, you know, a show and it's not going up on our Patreon, um, I would rather save the Magnus Archives and Strange Dr. Weird for um, our regular shows. So, there you have it. We're going to get going to... Uh, the Weird Circle, the Werewolf. And then, uh, we'll end the show with, uh, our pod people segment as usual. So. There you have it. We'll be back. We'll be back in just about half an hour to, uh, end the show.
11: life, listen to the
0: weird circle.
4: circle time at the Ogden's Playhouse. Tonight we are to hear a radio adaptation of the Frederick Marriott story, The Werewolf. There's an eerie and unusual atmosphere to this story which makes it a good choice for this weird circle series. It's a story that recommends itself for good listening. In its own field, Ogden's Fine Cut Tobacco is the recommended choice for good smoking when rolling your own cigarettes. There's no substitute for quality. That's why Ogden's wins consistent top preference. Ogden's is the choice of smokers who demand the best. Try a package. You'll find Ogden's easy to roll, delightful to smoke. Yes, easy to roll, delightful to smoke. And now our story, The Werewolf, by Frederick Marriott.
11: Out of the past, phantoms of a world gone by, speak again the
0: immortal tale, the will.
12: our neighbor's dog baying at the moon. Go to sleep. You are safe here with my husband and me.
6: Where are you? Good wife.
12: Here. Shh. The boy's trying to sleep. What news of his father?
11: Peace to his soul. He was raving mad by the time I got into the hospital. It was brain fever. How's the boy?
12: Poor little lad. It says they walked all the way from the Harz Mountains. And he's only 11. He was starved. Ate his supper as if he'd never seen
11: food. Oh, there's tragedy back of all this, good wife. And the boy stopped me on the road and asked for help. There was terror in his eyes. Oh, help me! Oh, help me! Oh, quiet, boy. Quiet. Nothing to fear. You're safe here by the sea. There are no wolves here. Just lie quietly, boy. I want to talk to you. Yes, sir. By what name are you called?
13: Herman. Herman Cairns.
11: Well, Herman, I'm afraid I have sad news for you.
13: My father is dead? Yes. That is not sad news. I thank heaven. What? Why? Because... Because my father is free of the evil one and his curse. Now there is only me. But I must go. I must hurry. I must get far away from the forests and the mountains. Oh,
11: lie back, child. Wait a bit. There are no mountains or forests here. Only the calm sea.
12: What do you fear, Herman? Let me sit beside you. Don't be afraid. You kissed me. Is that so strange?
13: Oh, it is very strange. You are kind and good, and, and yet you are a woman. Oh, motherless little one.
11: Hmm. It might help you lose some of your fears, boy, if you told us something about yourself. You were born in the Harz Mountains?
13: No, my dear. We lived in Hungary on the state of a great noble. My father was steward. And what about your mother? She ran away from us when we were very small. My brother Caesar said it was because of her that my father killed his noble lord.
11: Oh, I see. Now go on with your tale. Our
13: father took all the money we owned and put us in the sleigh. We drove fast and far until we were out of Hungary. Then he bought a cottage among the tall firs deep in the Hearts Mountains. And there we grew up.
11: Your brother and you.
13: And our little sister, Marcella. We loved her very much. Weren't you very lonely? the winters were long and dark. Father went hunting every day, but shut us indoors for safety from the wolves. He also forbade us to light the fire, so we used to creep under heaps of bear skins to keep warm. We'd talk of that happy time when when the snow would melt, the leaves burst out, the birds sing again, and we could go outdoors and play in our garden. Mm,
11: A sad life for children.
13: No, not sad. We were happy with each other, we three, Until, yes, Herman, until, the howl of wolf. Father had come from his hunting and had kindled a fire. And we were sitting around it when suddenly a wolf howled close under the window. My father seized his gun, looked to the priming, and ran out, shutting the door behind him. We waited hours. and It was nearly midnight when my brother Caesar went to the door.
12: I've heard no report of a gun.
13: Father must have chased the wolf a long way. Or else... Oh, no. Father's all right, Marcella. I will look out and see if he's coming. Take care, Caesar. The wolves may be close and we cannot kill them. I'll be careful. Hmm. I see nothing but moonlight and snow. Come in, Caesar. Father will come when he can. I'm hungry. We've had no supper. But we'll be punished if we do not wait. Father will be glad to have food ready. Let's cook it for him and for ourselves. Very well. I'll get down some (coughs) venison. But, Marcella, can you dress it? Surely. Haven't I often helped, Father? Get the iron pot, Herman.
12: There.
13: I've cut off lots of slices. Now, put the fat in the pot. Oh, be careful of the fire, little sister. Mm, Look out the window, Herman. Someone's coming. It's Father. And there's a man with him leading a horse.
0: Yes,
12: and there's a lady in the saddle. See how the moon shines on her white face and that lovely flaxen hair. I'm frightened. Why, sister darling? She's beautiful.
6: Hola! Hola! Caesar, open the door. We have guests.
11: Enter, good sir. I have little to offer, but you and your daughter are welcome. Friend, Hunter, it was good fortune for us that you were out so late. We had ridden far in fear of our lives.
12: And we would have died of cold and hunger in those mountains had you not heard our horn and saved it.
11: Come, mistress. Seat yourself by the fire.
12: The warmth is pleasant.
11: And the smell of food is pleasanter still. You have young cooks here, mine here. <laughs> yes, these are my children. Caesar, Herman, and Marcella. Welcome, sir.
13: We have supper already, Father.
11: Before I eat, I must put up my horse. Oh, I will take care of him. Let me go with you. Oh, you need in trouble. But, if you like, come along. I have a shed outside.
12: What fine boys you are. <clears throat> Come close to me. Mm, good strong arm. And sturdy shoulder. Why do you tremble, lad? You are so white and shining. There's no reason to fear me. You're a stranger. I'm not strange. We shall be friends, hmm? But where's the little girl? She's afraid. I think she's hidden herself in bed. Gone to bed without any supper? <laughs> She must have been a bad little girl. She is
13: not bad, lady. No, she's good.
11: (laughs) You say you were lured away by a large white wolf which howled at this very window? Yes, I saw it about 30 yards off. The animal retreated slowly and I followed. I didn't like to fire until I was sure that my shot would take effect.
12: A white wolf? Of course you were anxious to shoot such a very rare animal.
11: The wolf would leave me far behind, then stop and snarl defiance at me. Then start off at speed again as I neared it. It led me further and further up the mountain to an open space in the forest. There it stopped and growled. I raised my gun to shoot when suddenly the wolf disappeared. Disappeared? How strange. I thought the moonlight on the snow was playing me some trick. But no, she was gone. So that's when I heard your horn.
12: The creature passed us just as we came out of the woods into that glade.
11: I nearly shot it myself. But since she led you to our rescue, I'm glad I let the wolf escape.
12: Father, that open glade is the home of the evil
11: ones. Evil ones? What does the boy mean? Oh, superstition has it that strange and wicked beings haunt these mountains.
12: Oh, I must hear more of these legends.
11: Evil spirits interest me. Well, I confess I was glad to see that you were mortal. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> My daughter, Christine, and I are just creatures of flesh and
12: blood. <laughs> yes, I assure you, I'm only a woman with very human appetites. And right now, I, I have a great desire for sleep.
13: My father made room for all of us, and we crept into our beds. But we couldn't sleep. Father and the strange hunter sat up all night before the fire, drinking and talking. Our ears were ready to catch the slightest whisper.
11: You say you come from Hungary? Even so, Mynheer. I served a noble house, but my master was cruel. It ended in my giving him a few inches of my hunting life. So we fled for our lives. Well, we are countrymen, then, and brothers in misfortune. I, too, have fled for my life. Your name, ma'am? Krantz. Krantz. I... I have heard your story. I am your kinsman, Wilfred of Bonsdorf. Well, a toast then to welcome you, cousin. You and your daughter must stay here as long as you choose.
13: So the huntsman and his daughter, Christine, stayed on in the cottage. The two men hunted each day, and Christine stayed with us and did the household duties. Father was becoming very attentive to Christine... They would often sit up at night talking in low tones before the fire. Then, several weeks later, we learned that Father had asked Christine in marriage.
11: You may take my child, Grunts, and my blessing with her. I will duly value her. But uh, there is no priest in this wild country. Well, there must be some ceremony between you to satisfy a father. Will you? Will you both consent that I marry you after my own fashion? I will. I will. Then take her by the hand and swear... I swear? By all the spirits of the heart's mountain... Nay. Nay, why not by heaven? Because it is not my humor. Surely you will not thwart me. Yes, but why swear by that in which I do not believe?
0: Bobby,
12: no, please don't marry you.
11: Be still, Marcella. This
12: is scarcely any affair of yours, child.
11: Well, will you be married or shall I take my daughter away with me? Proceed. Here is the oath, writ out on this parchment. Read it. I swear. By all the spirits of the heart's mountains, I take Christine for my wedded wife. I will ever cherish and love her. My hand shall never be raised to harm her. And if I fail in this my vow, may all the vengeance of the spirits fall upon me and upon my children. May they perish by the vulture or by the beasts of the forest. Why... Why this is horrible! I, I can't swear, swear. All, all this I,
0: I swear. Father, oh, father!
11: Strange
12: behavior from your children, my husband, on our wedding night.
0: Stop crying,
11: Marcella. I'm sorry, Christine.
12: Never mind, my dear husband. I'm not angry. But from now on, the children are my concern. They shall obey me. And I shall love the little darlings.
4: Friends, the legend of the werewolf is one that has lived a long time in the pages of classical folklore. Many of you are familiar with the legend... And no doubt many of you have a preconceived idea of what comprises the climax to tonight's Weird Circle story. Roll your own cigarette smokers everywhere know that there isn't any legend to the story of smoking satisfaction when your choice of tobacco is Ogden's Fine Cut. And you know what to expect every time you light a cigarette rolled with Ogden's. You're certain there can be only one result. Complete smoking enjoyment. There's a smooth goodness to Ogden's. A distinctive taste and uniform quality that makes Ogden's, O-G-D-E-N apostrophe S, Ogden's fine-cut tobacco, the leading choice of people everywhere, discerning roll-your-own cigarette smokers who insist on the very best. Try Ogden's and you're sure of top-flight smoking satisfaction. You'll agree that Ogden's is easy to roll, delightful to smoke. Yes, easy to roll, delightful to smoke. And now back to our story. Krantz, a fugitive from Hungarian cruelty, had fled with his small children, Caesar, Herman, and Marcella, to a rude hut deep in the Hartz Mountains. One winter night, while pursuing a white wolf, Krantz is hailed by a stranger and his beautiful daughter, Christine, who were lost in the mountains. He invites them to his humble home, and being glad for the good company he thinks they will be, he begs them to stay on as his guests for as long as they choose. In the days that follow, Kranz falls in love with the beautiful Christine, and though his little daughter cries out in fearful premonition of things to come, he marries her in a strange pagan ceremony.
13: morning, Wilfred the hunter mounted his horse and rode away. Things went on much as before the marriage, except that Christine showed us no kindness now. She often struck us and took special pleasure in ill-treating Marcella. One night, my little sister shook us as we slept. Wake up, brother. Wake up, Herman. Hmm? What's the matter, Marcella? She's gone out. Gone out? Yes, in her night clothes. I saw her get out of bed. Then she looked at father to make sure he still was asleep. Then she went out the door. A wolf. She'll be torn to pieces. Oh, no. Much as I hate her, that would be too horrible. Oh, what can have made her go out all undressed in the deep snow? She's strange. She's dreadful. Her eyes flash fire when they look at me. Her teeth are like an animal. She certainly eats queerly. Have you noticed she doesn't like to sit at the table? While well, getting supper, I've seen her tearing a piece of meat that wasn't even cooked. she is in the
12: firelight. She's in her white nightdress.
13: Washing her face and hands in the water pail. Father hasn't even waked up. Shh. She's going back to bed.
12: We might as well go to sleep now. But we'll watch again tomorrow night.
13: The next night and every night, our stepmother rose from bed and left the cottage. And every night the wolf howled under our windows. And always on her return... Christine washed herself, then crept back to bed, and always my father slept soundly. Well, the time came when my brother could stand it no longer. Caesar, why have you come to bed all for dressed? dress? I'm going to find out about these midnight walks. You'll tell father?
12: Not until I know where she goes and what she does.
13: Caesar, you don't mean that you Yes, tonight I'm going to follow her. No, Caesar, please don't. Please don't. I'm afraid. I know you're brave, but... I wish you wouldn't go, brother. I'm going now. There's no use talking.
0: Shh. She's getting
13: up now.
8: Quiet, you two.
12: There she goes to the door.
13: Be careful, Caesar. Be careful. He took father's gun. Oh, I'm so frightened. So am I'm shaking all over. I wonder how long we'll have to wait. A shot. Father will would wait right now and find out about her.
0: No. Listen.
13: He's still asleep. Someone's coming. Oh, I hope well, so. It's not Caesar. It's Christine. Shh.
0: Look
13: at her. Marcella, her dress is all covered with blood. Now, what's she doing? Mm.
11: Huh? Who's there?
12: Lie still, dearest. It's only me. Oh. I'm just relighting the fire to warm some water.
11: Hurry back, Christine, mind. You should be asleep at this time of night.
13: We watched our stepmother change her linen and burn the garments. Her leg was bleeding. She bandaged it and sat before the fire. But where was Caesar? And how did Christine get the wound and rest from his gun? Oh, trembling in our bed, we waited. Waited till dawn. Father awoke.
11: Father! Well, what is it, Herman?
13: Father, where is my brother, Caesar?
11: But what do you mean, son?
13: Oh, he went out in the night. Marcella and I waited for him. He's not come back. Merciful heaven. I was restless last
12: night and thought I heard someone lift the latch. Dear me, husband, what has become of your gun?
11: My gun? But great heaven, it's gone. Caesar took it. Herman, get me the ax I'm going to find Caesar.
12: quimpling will not help. Here comes your father now.
13: Father. Father's carrying
0: pieces
13: to pieces. Oh.
11: Clear the table. There. The body of my oldest son.
0: Seven. <laughs>
12: Husband, your boy must have taken the gun to shoot a wolf. The animal must have been
13: too powerful for him. Poor boy. At that terrible moment, I wanted to tell Father all we knew, but Marcella held my arm and looked so imploringly at me that I kept silent. She and I were sure that Christine had some connection with our brother's death. Father dug a grave and piled stones on it. And for days he, he just sat and stared at the fire mourning for Caesar. Our stepmother's wanderings continued. One day, Father again took down his gun to go hunting, but soon returned.
11: Would you believe it, Christine? The wolves' perdition to the whole breed have dug up the body of my poor boy. And there's nothing left of him but bones. Amen.
13: Indeed. Then you must build a new grave. Father, a wolf howls under our window every night.
11: Well, what? why didn't you tell me? Wake me the next time you hear it. I'll get that wolf.
13: Have you not yet
12: learned that it is safest to leave wolves alone?
11: Why, Christine, your eyes are wild and and you're almost snarling at me.
12: But I'm so afraid for you, dear husband.
13: We never heard the wolf howl under our window again. Well, oh, when at last spring came, and I helped my father with our small farm, Marcella was always with us, for we couldn't bear to have her out of our sight. Our stepmother stopped going out on her nightly rambles. One day, she came out to us and said she was going to collect some herbs father wanted, and that Marcella must go to the cottage to watch the dinner. Well, Marcella obeyed, and we saw my stepmother disappear into the forest in the opposite direction. So felt no danger for my little sister. But about an hour later
11: Marcella. She's by oh. herself. Run, Herman, run. Uh, Good. Look. The white wolf.
13: Breaking out of our cottage. Sure, Father. I have no gun.
11: We're too late. It's gone.
13: Oh. Oh, my little Marcella. The wolf has hurt her terribly. She's bleeding, Father. She's dying. Marcella. Marcella, my darling.
12: Speak to me. The white wolf. What's wrong? <laughs> oh, how horrible. Poor child. Oh, it must have been that great white wolf which passed me just now. And frightened me so. She's quite dead. Oh, my poor husband.
13: How horrible.
12: How horrible.
13: We dug a grave for my darling little sister and did everything we could to protect it against wolves. I was alone now. So, so awfully alone. But no longer afraid of my stepmother. My heart was full of hate and revenge. That very night, I saw Christine get up and go out of the cottage. I dressed quickly and half opened the door. The moon was very bright, and I could see Marcella's grave. But I saw something else. Something so horrible that I turned cold in my heart and ran to wake my father. Father! Father, get up and dress. Hurry!
11: Uh, what? The wolves again? I'll be right there. Get my gun.
13: I, I have it, Father. Come.
11: Herman, Stop. Who is that crouching on Marcella's grave? Christine.
13: Yes. In her white nightdress. She's digging with her hands.
11: She's throwing the stones behind her. Her her face is as cruel as a wild beast. Oh, Oh, she's destroying Marcella's grave. Your grandfather's shield. Yes, my son, yes. Pray that my hand holds steady. (laughs) and forgive me. I have killed my beautiful Christine.
0: No. No,
13: look, father. The body on my grave, the body you've killed is, is not my stepmother. It's not Christine.
0: No.
11: No, it's the white wolf. The white wolf which lured me into the forest. The white wolf that killed my children. Oh, I see it all now. My oath, my oath to the spirits of the hearts, mountains of the hearts, mountains. I take Christine for my wedded wife. I will ever cherish and love her. My hand shall never be raised to harm her. And if I fail in this my vow, may all the vengeance of the spirits fall upon me and upon my children. May they perish by the vulture. Or by the beasts of the forest. (laughs) Poor fool, mortal, who had a werewolf. (laughs) Your beautiful Christine, a werewolf. A
0: werewolf.
13: (laughs) (laughs) Stop, demon, stop. I shall go mad.
11: Come, my son, my little Herman. You at least may escape this awful curse. We must flee for our lives, away from these evil forests to the sea. There you'll be safe, my son. There you will be safe.
0: From the
7: time-worn pages of the past, brought you? The werewolf. Bellkeeper. Oh!
4: be another Weird Circle presentation of the Ogden Playhouse next week at this same time. This is where
1: And we are back for the end of our program tonight. That was the... May 7th, 1944 broadcast of the Weird Circle, The Werewolf. I think we all kind of figured where that story was going uh, once the... the stepmother took her cruel turn towards Marcella. But maybe you weren't surprised. I wasn't. Maybe, yeah, I wasn't. But anyway... Uh, we'll just, uh, let's just end the music there. Oh, wait, nope, we forgot one thing. Let's make this official.
4: Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. Prayaga, a Hindu fakir buried himself in sand with only his arms exposed to extend a begging bowl to people passing by six hours each day for 12 years. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you how Dunder Rock got its name. History tells of many great naval battles, but one of the most unusual sea battles that never took place happened in Dunder Rock on Lake Champlain near Burlington, Vermont. Thunder Rock so resembles the outline of a gunboat that a Dutch captain mistook it for an enemy vessel and fired a broadside at it. The stone got its name from the captain's exclamation when he discovered his mistake. Thunder was a blunder, believe it or not.
1: All right, yeah, there we go. That's all four of our Ripley shorts for tonight. Uh yeah so we're gonna get ready to wrap up the show i've got things to do i've got an inspection tomorrow that frankly has me rather stressed but oh well um and uh, so yeah we're gonna end this with our pod people segment tonight's pod per, pod people seg- choice is uh the podcast the storage papers um, we do have a trailer and a clip, but the basic premise is that this man um, wins an auction for a an abandoned storage locker, storage unit, for a dollar. A dollar, and uh, inside he finds all these these papers, and so basically, it's it's very similar in feel, and well, I would say similar in execution not so much in feel to the Magnus Archives. Um, the Magnus Archives is a very polished podcast, and in some areas the prediction on this is a bit off. You know, like where they have sound effects that are um, um, going over the speaker, and you you shouldn't have that. Um, this is. I haven't listened to much of this yet. I I've enjoyed what I have heard. Uh, excuse me. Uh, so let's just dive into the storage paper, the storage papers teaser one.
5: Rusty Quill
14: presents. I suppose I should explain a few things before I get into full production here. My name's Jeremy, and a few months ago, I was clearing out my storage unit when I noticed a sign advertising an auction that day. I'd seen a couple reality TV shows where people purchased rights to storage units that were delinquent in payments, and then they would turn some profit for items contained within them. Out of mere curiosity, I stuck around for the auction just to watch the process. Since I was the only person that showed up, I figured I would bid the minimum bid of $5, and I won. I was able to sell an old guitar case on Craigslist for about $100 and ended up with a nice patio furniture set that I kept. Most of the storage unit's contents were junk, but there were a few boxes that piqued my interest. They contained what appeared to be a mix of old case files or witness statements. My guess is that the previous owner was some kind of private investigator. I was originally on the fence about throwing these out, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. If you know me personally, you'll know that I have an interest in anything paranormal, and these papers were right up my alley. So I brought them home and began reading. They're completely unorganized, so I don't know if any of them are related just yet, but I've noticed some... changes occurring around me lately. I've been seeing and hearing things at home, and I'm barely certain I'm being followed. Having done some paranormal investigations myself, I decided I'd set up an audio recorder one night, and I just let it record while I slept. Aside from my own snoring, I managed to catch one voice on the recording. Here's the audio clip from that night, which I've enhanced a bit. I've made these words out to be saying lectito, comunico." They're Latin words that can be translated to say, read, share. Normally I wouldn't follow the instructions of a disembodied voice, but to be perfectly honest, I'd been thinking about finding some way to share the contents of these papers anyways. just wasn't sure how I would until now. The Storage Papers is a new bi-weekly horror podcast coming soon. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Storage Papers for updates or visit anchor.fm slash the storage papers.
1: Alright, I was wrong. It was $5. Oops. But there you go. Alright, and here is the clip. Here is the clip. This is from Episode 1, Baby Cries.
14: There's something inside us that compels us to respond when we hear a baby crying. A wide range of feelings may affect us whenever we hear it, from sympathy to anxiety and even frustration and helplessness, especially if you're a parent who can't seem to figure out how to get the crying to stop. Crying is the universal cue for infants to communicate that they have a need, a need which they themselves are unable to fulfill. The only thing we know initially is that some kind of action must be taken. As I read the following account, try to imagine how you would respond given the same circumstances. Witness Statement from Jim Thorpe, Saturday, February 7th, 2009 Earlier this evening, I went for my routine jog. I'd been training for a marathon, and Saturdays were always long mileage days. I'd planned on getting 11 miles in, and I'd like to run on this stretch of bicycle trail by the lake for my long runs. There's plenty of tree cover for shade, and around evening time, there doesn't really seem to be too many other people around. It's peaceful. They'd also just paved the trail so I could make decent time as opposed to running on gravel and dirt, and adding a little bit of my favorite music really helps the old stress management. Anyways, I was about 5 miles in on the trail. I know this because I could see the mile marker just ahead. I was planning on passing it and running another 4 minutes before turning around. I've been trying to keep an 8 minute mile pace during my training. But just before I reached that 5 mile marker, I thought I heard something like a moan or a scream coming from the woods opposite the lake. So I decided to stop and pull my earbuds out. It was oddly quiet. I don't always run with my headphones in, but I've been listening to some music for some extra motivation. Normally you could hear birds chirping, crickets, or maybe even frogs nearby. But not this time. The only thing I heard was a slight breeze through the trees. I waited for about 10 or 15 seconds, looking in the direction I thought I heard the noise from, and didn't hear or see anything, really, until I was about to put my earbuds back in. That's when I heard it. two distinct cries from a baby I remember when my kids were babies my wife and I could distinguish what they needed by the types of cries they made the cry you hear when a baby's hungry is different than when the baby needs a diaper change if you know what I mean this sounded like the cry our kids made when they were hungry
1: oh right that's it (laughs) So there you have it. Episode one of the Storage Papers Baby Cries. What's making the noise? Only one way to find out because I'm not telling. Uh, so next week's program, we're going to have a little bit, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, we're going to be doing a part of a novel that deals with a, a, a trip to hell, a, a trip to the underworld. Um, it's from uh Sir Walter Scott's uh, Red Gauntlet and it's called Wandering Willie's Tale. Do you have Wandering Willie? If so, contact your doctor. Um and that'll be about an hour long. Of course, we'll have episode 8 of the Magnus Archives which is entitled boop boop Boo." boo, boo, boo. Cuz when I had that already, I'm sorry. Uh, ep- uh episode 8 Episode 8 of the Magnus Archives which is called Burned Out. So there you have it. Of course Strange Doctor Weird number 6 and our old time radio selection of the day. Which will be the again the weird circle again? Sorry, but uh, the Feast of Red Gauntlet, which is an adaptation of *Wandering Willie's Tale*, and of course four new Ripley's Believe It or Not shorts. So, uh, just a reminder of everything you're going to hear here on Radio for Humans this week. Tomorrow night, of course, at 7 p.m. Eastern, is Voodoo Z- Voodoo Zombie Boutiques. Uh, time for go to bed. They finished. Dorothy and the wizard in Oz last week I don't know what they're starting this week but of course they'll also be continuing with Jerry the circus among other things so there you have it uh th- after directly after that of course will be uh from the bunker S- Friday night 7 to 10 p.m Eastern is it came from Cleveland which will feel which they did which will feature a brand new mythical moment I still got to write it but Uh, I got stuff that I gotta do first. (laughs) Saturday, of course, Paul's Memory Bank, 8 p.m. Eastern. And finally, don't forget, Sunday, starting at noon Eastern, Second Chance Sunday, starting with It Came From Cleveland, Paul's Memory Bank, Dread Time Stories, and Time For Go To Bed. So, yeah, that way you have a second chance to... To listen to all the great programs you may have missed this week uh, hopefully Kenny's okay with it he hasn't said Adam it's a stupid idea stop it right now but anyway uh, just a reminder that we do have a patreon um, you can start you can uh, donate you can start in at as little as a dollar but uh, starting at $5 once I get that first $5 donation uh, we, I start to produce bonus content, and, uh, it'll initially be one month will be a bonus episode of Dreadtime Time Stories, the next month, um, will be a, a podcasting tutorial, which covers some element of how I go about doing a podcast, not, not necessarily this podcast, but just, you know, some general tips and tricks, um, who knows, maybe, Maybe I'll do a special, because I've been wanting to do a live reading of one of my favorite Japanese stories. Um, I don't know if you've heard it before, heard of it before, um, but I want to do a reading here of um, Tale of Heike. Which, again, if you remember back to, I believe, episode 2, no, I think it was episode 4, Lafcadio Heron, um, The Tale of Earless Hoichi um he was a a um biwahoshi a a biwa monk who specialized in telling the story of um the battle of dannoura which was the site of the final defeat of the um taira or Heikei clan and that is a major part of the tale of the Heike. and i love that story um i think the the Best comparison to it, in terms of Western literature, would probably be the Iliad. It is a war story. Um, of course, there's more to it than that. Um, it's a very Buddhist story. So who knows? Maybe that'll also be some our bonus content. And of course, once we hit, hit certain milestones, I start doing as you as I get more, you know, as more and more um, donations come in, I do more and more bonus content. It, to where eventually it will be. Um, I believe two of each a month. So basically I would be pumping out one, uh, bit of bonus content a week. Um, I'd have to double check that just to be sure. Um, I gotta be careful. I don't want to get in over my head. I don't want to make promises that I might not be able to keep, but, um, let's see here. I think, of course... Um, I think that, um, damn, (laughs) like I said, as, as donations go up, I do more content. And eventually, like I said, the goal would be, I believe I'd have to check our various goals. At uh, once, we get uh, two hundred or more per month. Uh, yeah, it's a weekly. It's weekly bonus content. So basically, you would be getting two bonus episodes of Red Time Stories, and two podcast uh, tutorials. And and like like I said, this is my way of passing the torch. I I want people to podcasting has brought about a, a renaissance in many respects. Uh, basically. Anyone with a computer microphone can create their own uh, podcast. And I've been blessed that I have access to a server that allows me to be a part of a radio network. Um, And, of course, not everyone will have that. But there you have it. So, yeah, don't forget. uh, That is at uh, patreon.com slash studio underscore Hebert. And again, this isn't necessarily just for dread time stories. This is going to be any, all my projects that I I will produce. Um, so right now I'm focusing on dread time stories. As money comes in, that might change. Um, but again, just a reminder that the more uh, donations I get, the more bonus not only the more bonus content I will produce, but I'm also able to make improvements to the broadcasts I do do. That includes better equipment, like mixers, microphones, stuff like that. Um, and, of course, there is Anime Week in Atlanta every October where I go, and uh, if I'm lucky, I get a press pass, and I get to interview anime uh, voice actors. I've interviewed Steve Bloom. I've interviewed Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, Gray DeLisle, Dante Basco, Michael Niklas. I mean, I, I, you know, I may have to upload that just as kind of a promo, promo of what you can expect to get if I make it to AWA next year. Um, but anyway, so like I said, starting at $5, you get bonus content, extra episodes of time Stories, as well as um, podcasting tutorials. Anyway, that's going to be it for us tonight. Thank you again for listening. Just a reminder that all instrumental music you hear on this program is provided courtesy of TabletopAudio.com. Tabletop Audio, uh, royalty-free music. For wherever you work, podcast or play, and that's my own copy. So there you have it. So yeah, we're gonna. Uh, I can't guarantee that the podcast will go up tonight. Unfortunately, it is not my priority right now. Um, I have to get this place ready for an inspection tomorrow. That's the priority. So, um, like I said, we. I'll try and get it up tonight. I don't make any promises. If not tonight, definitely tomorrow. And so, again, uh, next week. There we go. Next week, we have wandering willies tale by sir walter scott an excerpt from red gauntlet and the weird circle again and a bunch of other great stuff that you're going to enjoy special thanks to uh the rusty quill again TabletopAudio.com, and don't forget all important links will be in the show notes for the podcast post I usually do not include the links on the SoundCloud post. So there's that. Everyone have a great week, and I will see you next time. Until next week, this is yours cruelly wishing you unpleasant dreams.